Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. I'm going to learn to be very cautious when Lori says, hey, can I do announcements here? <laughs> Thank you guys for serving that way. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here, and thanks for being a part of what God's doing in our faith community here. We're wrapping up a short series called Followers of the Way. It's really looking at what happened in kind of the shadow of Easter, the shadow of the resurrection. And we could do a, a much more prolonged series in this study in the book of Acts. This is a, a study of this amazing account by the gospel historian Luke. It's kind of like chapter one is the gospel of Luke. That's the story of Jesus. Chapter two is the story of the church in Acts, the book of Acts. What we said in week one is that the resurrection of Jesus changed absolutely everything. Took this kind of like cowering group of fishermen disciples who were hiding in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came upon them and it just exploded the growth of the early church. And it began a, a new kind of community, a new kind of resurrection community. Last week we studied this really inspiring passage in Acts chapter two. It paints this picture of how the church just had this spark and it was exploding in growth and people were caring for one another. Everyone loves to be a part of a church that's full like that. Everyone loves to be a part of a church that's resourcing and caring for one another. Everyone wants to be a part of a church like an Acts chapter two kind of church. Nobody wants to be a part of an Acts chapter three church because right after that happened, the church started enduring hardships, like significant hardships, people being arrested, people being persecuted. And the church started going through hardship. There are some messages that I just love to deliver because they feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, makes me feel good as I get to deliver a message to people. This week is a little bit harder because this is not as much fun to talk about. So I also have a little bit of fear as I bring the word to you this morning because I, I know that as we talk about hardship and enduring pain and difficulty that there are people that just go through unbelievable amounts of pain at the hands of others and even at your own decisions and in no way do I want to make light at any of that. So I have fear when you go to communicate about these kinds of things. But I know that even when it's not fun, I believe that what we're going to talk about this weekend, it's unbelievably encouraging, absolutely fundamental and foundational, what it means to be a follower of the way, because before anyone was ever called a Christian or little Christ, this sect of, of Jewish followers of this carpenter from Nazareth, they were just called the followers of the way, and hardship was a part of what they had to endure. The challenge is for us in Western culture, when we think about hardship that we might go through, we don't just disagree with it, we flat out reject it. When my hand hurts, it means that something is wrong with my joints and that something not good is happening in that moment. I remember when Jen was giving birth to Cannon and she started just declaring something is very, very wrong. This baby has to come out right now. We associate hardship with things that are wrong. So the problem is when we experience spiritual or relational or emotional hardship as well, we instantly think this isn't okay, it needs to stop. And when it doesn't stop, 
when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, when we're going through what the church fathers might have called a dark night of the soul, it's not always what happens to us, but it's how we interpret what happens to us. Because this is what happens. Sometimes when that happens to us, when we're going through hardship, we start to think, not just that something is wrong, but that something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with me. I, I'm not doing this right. I must have made a sinful or a foolish decision. God's hand of blessing isn't upon me. So something is wrong with my marriage. I must have picked the wrong person. Clearly, I heard wrong from God because if I had heard rightly, I would have made a different kind of decision and I'd be in a different situation. And the problem with all of that is we interpret then our circumstances and, and we start making decisions that are even worse. So I'm going to leave this person because there's a hardship and it means that we shouldn't have been together in the first place. And so now there's more damage and there's more fallout. Or, or maybe it's like this, school. School is really, really hard. It's really, really hard. So it's not right and I shouldn't be in this situation. So I'm just going to quit school. We think that something is wrong with us when we endure hardship and it just doesn't let up. Or we think... There's something wrong with God. God must not love me because he didn't take my situation away. He didn't heal my migraines. Why can't he just take the sickness away from my spouse or my kid? Or we think, you know what, maybe, maybe, maybe God just isn't powerful enough. Or he's just absent and he hasn't heard me. There's an underlying question. It's a very significant one. Why does God even allow that in the first place? Why does he allow pain and suffering in this Legit, because there's an unbelievable amount of hurt and suffering around the world, and I don't have an answer for every instance. Some, some cases, it happens because of our own decisions. Sometimes it happens because of someone else's actions. It has nothing to do with us. Sometimes it, there's no reason at all, and yet there's difficulty and suffering. I don't want to make light of any of that. But this morning, I just want to remind us that our God entered into suffering when he didn't have to. That Jesus, putting on flesh, was God being incarnated. And when he showed up at the scene of his best friend who died, the gospel writer John says that Jesus wept. And the words behind all of that actually is more that the, the authors were, or the translators were kind of holding back because it actually is referring to the kind of, the kind of snorting or bellowing of a, of a raging bull, an animal-like cry and it was Jesus in anger, anger at suffering, anger at death. And he wouldn't for one moment hold back from entering into that kind of pain, even though he knew what was on the other side for his friend Lazarus. Our God is a God that suffers. Jesus put on flesh. God came and lived as we lived, experienced what we experienced, was betrayed. He suffered alongside of us. We have a God that enters into our suffering, and yet would we look at what Jesus went through and we would, would we say that since he suffered, something was wrong with him? No, we wouldn't do that. And we wouldn't say that something was wrong with God, that he wasn't asleep on the job. In fact, we know that the sufferings of Jesus actually served a greater purpose, that this thing that the enemy intended for evil, God would ultimately use it for my salvation and your salvation. What I want to press into this morning, and it's true for all of our lives, 
is that this view that hardship means there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. In the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of the early church, that that's actually an immature understanding of what it, what it means to be a follower of the way and how God's kingdom works, that if we're gonna be followers of Jesus, that we have to change our relationship with hardship. And so this morning, I just wanna say that this message is really for two groups of people in the room. First is for those folks who are thinking about Christianity, maybe thinking about deciding to follow Jesus. I want you to know that following after Christ is hard work. When you're a Christian, when you say, I'm gonna be a follower of the way, you're signing up for hard work because it's not popular. It's not popular. I want you to know what you're getting into. Jesus says, I want you to count the cost. And oftentimes Christians say, it's so easy. All you have to do is say a little prayer and, and hibbity hop, mercy me, I can only imagine. I've got fire insurance. It's not true. Count the cost. While the Christian faith is simple, it certainly isn't easy. Jesus said, why is the path that leads to destruction? And just about everybody goes down that path, but narrow is the path that leads to life. And so I just want you to know that following Jesus is hard. And it's gonna cost you. And listen, if it doesn't cost you, if it's easy, then maybe, just maybe, you're not doing it right. Maybe, just maybe, you're not doing it right. So I would say to you, count the cost and then follow Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. It's completely worth it. And then the second is for these people in the room that would say, I am a Christian, I am a Christ follower. And this is not just like a broad category, like, well, I'm not Muslim or I'm not an atheist. Sure, I'm a Christian. I mean, you've decided that I'm following after Jesus. And you're going to go through difficulty. And we need to have a framework to understand that. Because here's what's true about hardship. It's either going to catalyze your faith and propel your faith, or it's going to catastrophize your faith. It's going to fall apart, or it's going to be made stronger. If you miss anything else I say this morning, this is the one thing I want you to remember. That when it comes to hardship in our lives, that when the enemy intends it for evil, God can use it for good. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. This is going to be page 747 in the orange Bibles underneath your chairs. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take this one, keep it, put your name on it, bring it back, use it every week. We want you to be in God's Word. And this is what it says happens as we move from kind of this Acts chapter 2 reality into the rest of the book. They, they experience this explosive growth. And then instantly, these apostles are being arrested for their faith. It says that they were flogged. They were scourged and whipped and beaten. And then Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin. That's like the supreme court of the religious establishment. Rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And their backs would bear that kind of witness this kind of shame. This was their criminal record, the scars that they would bear. And anyone who saw them would say, I know that you've had a run-in with the law. But listen, what the enemy intended for evil, God uses for good. Because they left there, and they were rejoicing, and they were emboldened. And it says, day after day, the temple courts, and from house to house, they weren't afraid. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, who would enter into their world and bring about hope and meaning. 
And it says, in those days, the number of the disciples was increasing, and everything was up and to the right. This is like, this is like what it, what, 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 where we all want to be when we're spiritually and financially and emotionally, uh, we're, we're flourishing, and there's good vibes all around. And in the middle of that context, it says this. It says that there were Hellenistic Jews among them, and they complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there was a famine happening in Jerusalem, and the message of Christ was to care and to love for one another. So what the church did was they sold their property to care for other people, especially those that were particularly at risk, which would be widows who could not care for themselves. The Hellenistic Jews were people who followed Yahweh, but they, had, they came from a Greek culture. They spoke a Greek language. And, and then you had these Hebraic Jews. And it's not so much that there was intentional uh, favoritism happening. It's just that people were taking care of their own. And this minority was left out, and people started to complain. And apostles, you're in charge. What are we going to do about this? And the enemy was getting fingers into the church and starting to develop dissension and factions that were starting to build in the middle of all of this. But what the enemy intended for evil, God used for good because the 12 apostles, these leaders gathered together all the disciples and they said, hey, listen, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It feels a little snarky to me. I don't think that's what they meant. In other words, there's plenty of ministry to go around and it would be wrong for us to do all of that. And if we're administrating this stuff, it means that we can't be out healing people and spreading the gospel. So let's, let's spread out that opportunity for ministry. So they charged him and said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be, now check this out, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer the ministry of the word. I want you just as a sidebar, I want you to notice what are the qualifications for leadership? Did they say, let's find the best businessman, person with the most amount of degrees, the most learned? No. In the church, we're supposed to look for those people who are full of the spirit. That is, they see the world through a spiritual grid. They understand what's happening spiritually. They're guided and directed by Christ. They see spiritual realities. They're thinking about the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world. And they need to be people who are full of wisdom that when you hear them, you find yourself going, yeah, that, that feels true. That feels right. This person understands things. They, they have skill for living. They're not hasty. They're, they're not quick in their responses. So find those kinds of people. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And then we have kind of the main character for the story this morning, Stephen. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They also suppose, chose Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So they given authority. They're caring for the needs of the body. And Stephen became a person of great influence in the early church. And it says this. It says that the word of God spread. Church is being cared for. The gospel is being proclaimed. People are being healed. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And check this out, even a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and his power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Dun, dun, dun. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. 
the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So what is going on there? What's this synagogue? What is the synagogue? Well, you had the temple, the great building in Jerusalem, but then you had local houses of worship in different areas. And many times they would be gathered together by nationalities or, or even by crafts. Like those, you might have like stone layers, like a synagogue of stone layers, a gathering of, of stone layers. And this was called the synagogue, the gathering of freedmen. So what was happening is there was a group of people who had been taken to Rome as slaves, but later either they purchased their own freedom or they were freed by a a declaration by Caesar. And so they were now free and they created their own uh, group. And scholars would say that they started arguing with Stephen because somehow what he was preaching were kind of uh, endangering their view of Jewishness. They had suffered a ton for. They had to like buy their own freedom, and now they're being threatened by this guy, and now they start arguing with him. But they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Have you ever had an environment where people are stirring up strife and there's other conversation happening? And boy, that just feels cruddy when that happens to you, right? Why does that happen? Well, because misery loves company and that's what was happening here. And what they did was they seized Stephen and they brought him before this Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Because then the high priest turned to Stephen and asked him, Are these charges true? Are you speaking against the temple and the laws of Moses? Are you speaking against this establishment and how our whole culture is pulled together? If I were Stephen, you'd imagine that at this point, you would start contending somehow for self-preservation. No, no, guys, this is, this is a misunderstanding. I'm not against all of this. Come on, let's, let, me, let me explain a little bit. Instead, in this lengthy discourse, it takes about a chapter to tell, Stephen starts retelling the story of God's faithfulness and provisions over the history of his people. And he goes through their hero's faith out of Abraham and Joseph and and Moses and David. And he said, listen, you're worried about the temple, but none of these patriarchs even had the temple. And yet they had the presence of God. They They were led by faith. And then these prophets came. And you rejected all of those prophets. And Moses prophesied that one even greater would come. And then when he gets done quoting the Torah and the prophets, now Stephen has this platform before the Supreme Court. Now he has influence. And you can almost hear the tone of his voice change. What the enemy had intended for evil, God used for good because now he has a platform. He may have had the face of an angel, but I just imagine his words will full of fire as he speaks in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, 
Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you, you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. He's calling them hypocrites. He's insulting them. He's insulting their customs and their identity. And just imagine the environment in the room was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. It says this, verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Many scholars note that in the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, after he had finished atoning for our sin on the cross, ascended up to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God because as a priest, the priest would day after day have to make atonement for sin. But Jesus, the high priest, atoned once and for all for our sins and sat down because the work was finished. And yet Stephen says here that he looks and he sees the Son of Man standing. And scholars wonder if indeed Christ is standing out of care and appreciation for the first Christian martyr. That one of Jesus' followers would so trust and treasure the kingdom of God that he would not back down, not even for one minute when given an opportunity and it caused Jesus to stand. It says this, that at this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, they dragged him to, out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's a little bit of a here, hold my beer while I take care of this guy kind of a moment. According to their customs and laws, here's how a stoning would work. They would bring the condemned person out of the camp because his crime had rendered him unclean and whatever's unclean needs to be taken out of the camp. And if, it was a, and if, if this criminal was a man, they would leave him in nothing but a loincloth. And they would place them up on an elevated space and one of the witnesses would strike him with the stone. And if they didn't kill him with the first blow, then they would, as, uh, two other men would grab the stone that only, it would take two men to pick up and they would throw it on their chest. And that was the orderly way that this would be done. In fact, the law said that the person who made the accusation would be the one who would have to throw the first stone. But when the mob was at large, which seems to be the case with Stephen, the brutal rage armed every man and justice was set aside and, and they all became the judge, the jury, and the executioner all at once. And this is Stephen's response. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's echoing the very words of his Christ. He fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against me. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. And what the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. Because this man who was holding their coats, this man who approved of his death, this man who was so self-righteous 
and his hate against Christians that he would travel around and arrest them and take their property and split up families, jail them, even kill them. The same Saul was the Saul that Jesus chased down on the road to Damascus, blinded him with a great light, called him into his service, granted him repentance, and changed his life. And this Saul became Paul, the greatest missionary that the church has ever known. He wrote most of the New Testament for us. And he would go on to stand before Caesar and attest to the risen Christ and die for him. What the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. It says on that great day, on that day, the great, uh, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And just imagine this rabble that had stoned him. They must have been emboldened, like, hey, we can actually snuff out this thing called the church. And it says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. And he says, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Listen, what the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. Because the resurrection community that was like all huddled up in Jerusalem, like just hanging out in this space, now God uses that and he spreads them out. And we have this amazing picture of God using this suffering to propel the church forward. See, all we want to be is this Acts 2 church and we want everything to be good and up to the right. No one wants to be in Acts chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 church. And yet that is the very thing that God used even though the enemy intended it for evil, to propel his church forward. There's three things I, I just want us to think about this weekend. Is that hardship, that hardship is not necessarily a sign that something is wrong with you or that there's something wrong with God. This is so counterintuitive because like, like when suffering comes upon us, it feels wrong. And we didn't schedule this. We didn't see it coming. And it catches us off guard. When hardship hits us like that, it's, it's just something we internally reject. And yet this is what Peter says. All of 1 Peter, I just challenge you, if you want to do a fun study, go through 1 Peter and underline or highlight every time he talks about hardship or suffering. It's like the whole book is just about that. This is what Peter tells us. Dear friends, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be like, what happened? How did this come upon me? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you, listen, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't that how we like, categorize these things when we're going through family issues, financial issues, health issues, the loss? It just feels off. It feels strange. I love how Peter calls it a fiery ordeal. Listen, that fiery ordeal, it may be a boss or a coworker that secretly or openly mocks your faith. It might be cancer or dealing with the death of a loved one. It might be the pain of walking alongside of someone who is just stuck in an addiction and you just don't know why they can't pull it together and you're agonizing for them or you're walking alongside someone in your life group and they're going through this major life change and you just, it's not your sin, it's not even necessarily their sin, but it's just, just, it just hurts, it's just painful. He, he would call all of that a fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised. Don't count that as strange. He says this. This is the crazy upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. He says, but rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in that suffering of Christ so that you might be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
Stephen saying, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Rejoice, be overjoyed. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And if you suffer, he says, now this is interesting, if you suffer, don't let it be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or as a meddler. In other words, hey, there's suffering and there's consequences. Like there's like, you're making bad decisions, that's a consequence of what you're doing. There's, that's not persecution. However, he says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So when you're going through the thing that you're going through, that hardship, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with God. Second thing I want you to know is that God does not waste our suffering. He doesn't waste our suffering. At every turn, you could see the apostles being arrested and flogged. There's this internal strife in the church, and things are starting to break down, and there's Stephen's death, and you're like, man, this guy was talented. He was persuasive. He had wisdom. He was full of the Spirit. What a waste. What a waste. Yet it was his death that sparked the dispersal of the church. And goodness, running for your life, doesn't that seem negative? Not in God's economy, because... What the, enemy, what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. Warren Wearsby says that persecution does to the church what wind does to the seed. It scatters and produces a greater harvest. The word translated scattered in our passage in Acts, it means to scatter seed. And the believers in Jerusalem were God's seed, and the persecution was what God used to plant them in new soil so they could bear fruit. The enemy intended for evil, God used for good. James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way. He says, consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I am so glad that he uses that phrase, many kinds, rather than just saying persecution. Because there's all sorts of trials of many kinds that y'all and, and I, we're going to go through. How about when your finances are falling apart? You have more month than you have money left. You feel the strain of that. You're dealing with discouragement. There's mental health challenges. All of those are trials of many kinds. When you're struggling with loneliness or struggling to forgive, James says, I want you to take that out of, out of this column and put it in this column of pure joy. Why? Why? Why would we do that? This is what he says. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, I heard uh, John. John, uh, John was saying that he took his kids to a mineral mine and came back with all these gems. Now, have you ever seen gems out of a, uh, that came up out of the dirt and is jagged and they're not all that pretty, but the process is that you take that, that gem or that rock and you put it in a rock tumbler. And as the rock tumbles in there and there's grit and there's other rocks inside of that, it spins and spins and spins for not just days but for weeks. And as it spins, all of the edges of that rock get knocked off and it gets smoother and smoother and smoother until the time that you take it out. And what went into this jagged rock comes out this unbelievably beautifully polished stone. And it took grit to do that. It took hard knocks to knock off the edges 
when you go through hardship of many times, James is saying that that's, that's the thing that knocks off those edges and makes you shinier or more polished and more smooth. And even as I look back over my last 20 years in ministry, I can see those hard edges that I had and hard things I had to go through and being humbled and, and, being, and, and being God disciplining me and God was knocking off those edges and I find that I'm a little bit smoother now than I was then. And I hope a little bit prettier than I was then. And, and, and I meet and I talk with people who are 20 years ahead of me and I see them not freaking out so much the way that I freak out about things. And I think something has knocked the edges off of them. So now they know something deeper and they've learned to persevere and they have grit. I wanna be like that. I wanna be like that. Paul David Tripp says that suffering draws out the true thoughts, attitudes, assumptions, and desires of your heart. That's why it's called a testing, it's a refining of what happens because here's what often happens. I think I love God up here, but in reality, my faith is down here. And what it takes is that, that hardship or that suffering or that sickness, and now I'm, my zeal comes way down here to where my faith is actually at, and I think, God, I thought I trusted you with my finances. When everything was great and we could cover our bills, I thought I worshiped you, I thought I trusted you, but, but that's come down here, and now I feel afraid and uncertain, and I don't know how we're gonna pay these bills. And God says, I got you. I'm gonna take care of you. And you see his faithfulness, and now your faith goes from here to right there. And you keep going through life, and now you're like, I feel so great, God's taking care of me. I went to this conference, I went to Momentum, I feel so good. And then another thing happens. Kaboom! Comes right back down. And now you're sick. And, and you're like, God, I thought I trusted in you, and I just feel so weary, like I can't possibly be kind to my family right now because I've just lost it day after day after day. I thought I trusted you. He says, I'm gonna sustain you through this. And now your faith goes from here to up here. And your zeal feels great, and it's this constant pattern over and over and over again. Guys, that is the Christian life. And when we look at hardship, like something is wrong with us. The early church would say, are you kidding me? This is how God moved us forward. This is, we're, we get to count it joy that we get to suffer alongside Christ. And we're just so addicted to easy Christianity. And it's not easy, it's hard. Paul would say, and Luke would say, and Peter would say, persevere, persevere, keep going. God is refining you. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts through our pain. And it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. The third thing I want to speak to you, church, today is that you would choose courage over control. That you would choose courage over control. Think of Stephen. He didn't start backpedaling when they started accusing him. He didn't start rationalizing it. He didn't start, he didn't start saying, well, well, maybe this is just a disagreement here. Let, God, how can I have courage in this situation rather than simply trying to control the outcome? 
I remember um, probably about 10 years ago at a church that I was serving at, we hired these consultants to come in, and they were doing 360 reviews, and so I had to fill out a questionnaire that said, what are some of the things that are the greatest pressures to like, describe your ministry? And so I started saying, well, these are all these places I'm feeling stress, and, and I just feel overwhelmed by all of these things, and, and I expected them to sit down with me, and, and, uh, and, and so the guy sat down with me, and, and I was expecting him to say, okay, let's talk about how you can how you can get rid of these areas of stress in your life and, and how to draw priorities and, and how you can maybe control that a little better. And instead, you know what they said to me? They said, all right, let's talk about increasing your stress muscle. Like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make it better, not make me stronger to endure it in the middle of that. And I just had this real cognitive, emotional, spiritual dissonance at this point in time. But, but what they're saying is, Will you, will you develop the grit to persevere through what you're going through rather than just trying to get out of it? And the process of maturation as a Christian, as a person, is actually your ability to deal with that in a healthier kind of way? Listen, some of us are going through some intense, intense things from right now in your lives, and these are legit hard things. And we're crying out to God, God, would you just take this away from us? This is not a chapter of my life I wanna live in the middle of. I did not imagine my life going forward without him or her. This was not my retirement. This was not how my parenting was supposed to go. This is not my dream for myself. God, would you just rescue from me from this? And we're just asking God for escape when God wants to give you courage to go through it. What does courage look like in your instance? You're going to have to figure that out. You're going to have to go from your zeal up here to where your faith actually is. And you're going to have to, ready? Ready for this? You're going to have to trust in God to take you from there to there. And it's hardship that does that for you and for me. And the question is, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in a hardship and a stress-free life? If you want to see stress-free people, I can take you down to the local cemetery where you'll see hundreds of them. They have zero stress in their lives. But until then, you and I, like Stephen, like the early church, the Acts 3 and beyond kind of church, we're called to endure hardship. And what if maybe, just maybe, we become a part of that faith community that when we come together, we look at each other in the eye and we say, you keep enduring. You keep pressing on. You keep trusting in God. You're not alone. You got this. You can do this. And we supported each other to be that kind of resurrection, faith-filled community. Listen, God doesn't waste our hardship. And when we go through it, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with God. Maybe, just maybe, God is trying to take your zeal from where you think you are to increase your faith and sift you. Hardship after hardship after hardship until we get to see Jesus standing in glory on the other side of this. And then that's done. And it's beautiful and it's glorious. And God has taken you from this rock that was rough this polished stone that he's built his church out of polished stones like that so listen if you're going through hardship there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with God your hot mess is welcome in this space and if you think that this is a collection of polished stones you're wrong <laughs> there's a collection of rough stones 
And we want to be polished. And we want God to do this work in us and through us and around us. And we choose the path of trusting in him. And we encourage one another to endure hardship well. And listen, what the enemy intends for evil in your life, God will use for good. And you'll stand up on the other side of that and say, I still follow Jesus no matter what. And your friends will say, why? You say, because he was faithfully with me when I was at the worst. He walked through it with me. And you will get to the other side of this. And God will use what the enemy intended for evil. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and the band is going to come up, and we've got this time of worship, but listen, if, if in the middle of that, you're thinking about this storm that you're in the middle of, or you're thinking about this person that you're walking alongside of, or this family or friend that's walking through their own storms, and you just want to pray for them, if you want someone to pray for you, I'll gladly stay up here and just pray with whomever wants to be prayed over. May we be a resurrection community with resurrection faith like Stephen had. Why don't you pray with me? Oh God, this is not a fun message. Because nine times out of ten, my first reaction to any amount of hardship is escape. God, would you stir in us grit, perseverance, diligent obedience, trust. God, that no matter what he or she does, no matter where the money flows up or down, God, we would just choose to say, if all I have is Jesus, I have all that I need. With every head bowed and with every eyes closed, church, personally, I just want to share that my worship time in the morning when I get up, I spend time with Jesus, the song that I'm singing is in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And then I take that lyric and I twist it around. And when I am alone, when I am alone, or when I am afraid, or when he moves away, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus.